Well, we have come to the final chapter of this powerful book, and I want to tell you that next week we're going to try to do a thematic review. We're going to go back and look at the major themes and lessons of Zechariah in case you missed some of them. Not everybody can be here every Sunday. And it's good for us to come away from a study like this with with some of these things kind of burned in. This morning, we get the great challenge and the great encouragement of looking into what is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back here to this earth. This passage is both terrible and wonderful because when He comes back, it's going to be both terrible and wonderful. Those who love to paint Jesus as always benevolent and always tolerant of all the imperfections of men are going to have the rudest awakening of all when our Lord comes back and sets His feet on the Mount of Olives and billions of people perish. This final chapter is about cataclysmic judgment. But it's also about the kingdom of our Lord realized on earth. And above all, above all, it's about our King. You probably noticed my highlighting on verse 9. We're going to see that again. The first thing I want to point out in this book is structural. And we'll get through this really quickly, but I want you to take a look at this because it helps us see where the focus is. If you start at both ends of verses 1 through 19 and work your way in toward the middle, what you see are parallel ideas repeated on each side until you get to verse 9 and that verse stands alone. It's called a chiasm. Doesn't matter what you call it. The point of it is that the structure of the text itself has a focal point. And that focal point is verse 9. And when we get to that verse, you'll see why that's the focal point. The first verse is unique and significant. Literally, it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. Now, there are many times in the Old Testament where you see a passage that says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. But this one is very different. It says, a day is coming for Yahweh. The day of the Lord will be a day for the Lord. It will be a time for God's absolute power an absolute dominion over all men and over all of His creation to be manifested in a way that the world has not ever seen before that point. The day of the Lord is not just one 24-hour period. There are many passages that speak of the day of the Lord that talk of epic events that can't possibly happen in a single day, like the regathering of Israel and Judah from wherever they've been scattered on the earth to back to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or the gathering of the armies of all the nations of the earth to come up against Jerusalem. The day of Yahweh refers to a series of literally earth-shaking events that will unfold as God finishes out His marvelous plan of judgment and redemption and His righteous King comes to dwell in the midst of His people. The first thing that this chapter says God is going to do when this day of and for the Lord comes about is that God is going to gather the armies of the nations of the earth to besiege Jerusalem. He's going to use this huge, fierce army to execute judgment on His own people. 
in Judah. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will watch as their captors divide their possessions right before their eyes. The city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. And half of the city taken away. The prophetic books of the Old Testament often present a particular future event more than once. And I believe that's what's happening here. I believe that the judgment described in the first two verses of Zechariah 14 is the same judgment that we saw toward the end of the last chapter, chapter 13, which said that by God's hand, two-thirds of the inhabitants of the land would be cut off and would perish. But one-third would remain alive. And that one-third will be brought through the fire and refined as gold and silver are refined in a furnace. That remnant will call upon the name of Yahweh. He will be their God and they will be His people. In every age, God has preserved a remnant among Israel. A remnant of those who trust in Him and who seek to obey Him out of love for Him. Because they know His worthiness. We talked about that this morning. But also in every age there have been many in Israel who have treated their status as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if it were some kind of rubber stamp from God that guaranteed His favor, His blessing. When the events prophesied in this passage unfold, most of the generation of Israelites living in that day will die by the hand of God. All their efforts at law-keeping, all their insistence that the land and the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices and the covenants ensured God's favor for them, all those expectations will go up like vapor. They will die by the hand of God because of one thing. Because of the rejection of God's Messiah. Only those who have been justified by faith in God's Messiah will be standing when this judgment is complete. And in that day, I believe it will go much the same way with many who call themselves Christians. Only those who belong to Him by God's grace through faith in Christ alone will stand after His earthly judgment against all the nations of the world. All of those whose supposedly good works were done as some kind of a bargaining chip to get God's favor will perish. All of those that made God and His Christ servants of men instead of calling men to be humble servants of the Most High God will perish. They will perish right along with all of those who have completely disowned all association with Jesus Christ. There's going to be a threshing in that day that will divide between God's sheep and the goats. Only those who have trusted in Messiah, the righteous branch of David, the one God calls in this book my servant, my shepherd, my associate, my companion from eternity past, only those who trust in Him will stand when this judgment is completed. In verse 3, the object of God's fierce judgment shifts from His own people to all the other nations. Zechariah declares that Yahweh is going to go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. 
Verse 4 makes it clear that this battle is going to be an earthly battle. It says that Yahweh's own feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Those are specific geographical parameters. I don't believe it's any coincidence at all that this is the same mountain on which Jesus later presented what's known as the Olivet Discourse. He took his disciples aside privately and the, and the words that are recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21 are the words he spoke to them on that day. That powerful and frightening discourse addressed many of the same events that this chapter in Zechariah addresses. It addressed the signs of his coming and of the end of things. According to Acts chapter 1, about 500 years after Zechariah wrote these things down, the resurrected Christ ascended into heaven from that same mountain, the Mount of Olives. Here in Zechariah 14, God says, it is to that mountain that He's going to return. And when He returns, He will wage war against all the nations that God Himself has gathered together against His land and His people. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Verses 12-15 through 15 in Zechariah 14 provide the narrative of this battle that's introduced earlier. The battle, of course, is going to be very one-sided. As I said last week, there will be no escape for those who stand against God in that day. His Messiah, His Anointed One, Jesus, will speak a word. Revelation 19 talks about the sword that comes from His mouth. He will speak a word and all of His enemies will be smitten with a plague that will rot their flesh in an instant while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. Verse 13 says, a great panic from Yahweh will fall on them. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and will cause them to try to kill each other. Each one's hand will be against the other while they're dying from this consuming plague. All these people who had gathered together to annihilate Judah and Jerusalem will be annihilated. It would take a very, very long time to list all the passages in the Old Testament that speak of God's coming fierce judgment against all the nations. This is a huge theme in the Old Testament, but there is a one particular passage in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 13, that makes it infinitely clear why God is going to bring this judgment upon mankind. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 12 say, and there's a, I'm going to skip a couple in the middle, but it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And He will exterminate its sinners from it. 
It says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. We're going to see that again in a minute. And then it says in verse 11, Thus I, Yahweh, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and cast down the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. The judgment presented here in Zechariah 14 will be the final phase of a series of cataclysmic worldwide judgments through which God will bring about the death of the physical body for billions of people who will be living in that day. This year, the world population passed 7 billion. That death is the first death. It's the same death that billions of people ever since the dawn of man have already experienced. It's the same death to which every one of our bodies is destined because of the curse that God placed on mankind because of Adam's sin. The curse that spread to all men because all men sinned. Romans 5. It's the death that roughly 150,000 people are going to get to experience today. Sunday, February 22nd. You might be one of them. That's not a scare tactic. That is a very well-established statistic. But beloved, there is a second death coming. Not for all men, but for most. And it's an infinitely greater threat than the first one. The great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ that is presented at the end of Revelation chapter 20 is going to usher in the second death, and that death is eternal condemnation, separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever. For all of those who have rejected God's Messiah. Make no mistake, the first death, the death of the body, when it comes for you, is the end of the line for any opportunity that you will ever have to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die and after this, judgment. The debt that you owe to God because of your sin is an infinite debt. It's a debt that you can never repay. And the only way that that debt will ever be canceled out is if His Son's payment for sin gets applied to you. That's called justification. God takes your sin and He puts it on Christ. Christ pays for it and He puts His righteousness on you. And when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's exactly what happens the moment that you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you trust in Him alone to save you. If you haven't done that, today's a good day. You might not get another one. As we read about God's coming destructive judgment on all the nations of the world, we must not lose sight of His equally certain intention to call out a redeemed remnant from all the nations of the world. We read a passage, I believe Ron read the passage this morning, Revelation 7. Myriad upon myriad from every tribe and tongue and nation clothed in linen of white, 
And how did they get white? They were washed in the blood of the Lamb, the only blood that turns anything white. And they're from every nation of the world. Isaiah 19, I've been to this verse a few times in recent weeks, so I'm not, this passage, I'm not going to go into it in any depth again, but it's amazing, and it's an amazing, amazing passage. The last verse says, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God is going to save people from all the nations of the earth. The second part of verse 4 through verse 8, and then again, the other, the other mirror side in verses 10 and 11 is about changes in nature, changes on the earth, changes in the heavens. Verse 7 says, it will be a unique day. And I love the original language here. It's, it will be a day of one. <laughs> what is a day of one? There aren't any other like it. When Messiah comes and takes his stand on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, that mountain is going to be split into two mountains, creating a very large valley between. The people of the nations will try to escape through that valley and they will have no joy in that effort. At that point, Zechariah says, then Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. That should sound familiar if you've been in Revelation any. I believe that the battle described here is the same battle described in Revelation 19. It says, the armies which are in heaven clothed in linen. We just talked about how their linen got white. It says, white and clean. We're following Him, following Jesus on white horses into this great battle. It will not only be the surviving remnant of Judah standing with Messiah at that point. It will be all the redeemed saints of all the ages, Jew and Gentile together, clothed in robes turned white by the blood of the Lamb, returning with the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to execute judgment against this world. Verse 6 says, It will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Now that's a very common, very common declaration in passages that talk about this fearsome day of the Lord's judgment against all the earth. Amos chapter 5 verse 20 says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it? Isaiah 13.10 For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when, it's, when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Joel 3, verse 14, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. There's the valley again. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And then, I love this verse, Yahweh roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. The end of Zechariah 14, verse 7, looks forward to what will happen when this day of God's terrible wrath comes to an end. It says, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Verse 8 continues that theme of wonderful renewal that will follow this judgment. It says, and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will happen year round. And we've already seen how the Old Testament prophets again and again speak of Yahweh Himself as the fountain of living waters. 
He's the one who's going to pull us out of the waterless cisterns that we've dug for ourselves and then fallen into. He's the one who will bring us to drink of the water of life. The water that Jesus offered to the woman at the well in John chapter 5, and He called it the well of water springing up to eternal life. He is that well. He is the river of life. He is the fountain of life. He is the wellspring of life. He is every source and He is the only source of the water of life. By the way, I don't believe that the spiritual reality in any way cancels out the physical reality. I I tend to wonder why we get so hung up so often in Scripture trying to figure out which it is, spiritual or physical. God has always used physical memorials to point His people to spiritual realities. We partook of one this morning. When He's done with His mighty work of redemption, when He's finished making all things new, when He has undone the curse, He will have perfectly reconciled the physical realm with the spiritual realm. They won't be two realms, they'll be one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 says, It refers to the gathering together into one of all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth. So I see no reason whatsoever to think that there won't be two actual rivers flowing out of Jerusalem in that day. Those two rivers will be vivid physical reminders that the One who made those rivers is the source of the water of life. Verses 10 and 11 say that all the land around Jerusalem will be changed into a plain, a flat plain. (laughs) But Jerusalem will rise up and remain on its site. The capital of Messiah's reign over the whole earth will be physically lifted up just as His name is lifted up among all men as the only one to be exalted. Again, what you've got is a physical representation or symbol of the spiritual reality, and you've got the two coexisting together. That's what I believe is going to happen. I'm not sure, but that's what I believe is going to happen. Verse 11 says, there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, I want to be real clear here. The word for curse in that verse is not the word for the curse of sin. It's not the word used in Genesis 3. This word is the word that talks about divine extermination of physical life. You'll see the phrase sometimes in the Old Testament that a nation is put under the ban. That's what this word is. The Net Bible translates the wording very well here. It says, there will no longer be the threat of divine extermination. Jerusalem will dwell in security. The siege of Jerusalem described in this chapter will be the very last time that God allows the walls of Jerusalem to be breached by an invading army. The last time. God Himself will be Jerusalem's protector from that day forward. Even when Satan makes another another stab at it later. As He said in Zechariah chapter 3, verse, verse 5, I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. Jerusalem won't need any other protect, protection. We won't need any other protection. We don't need any other protection today when we look around us frantically trying to find security in anyone or anything other than God, we're foolish. 
Because He's the only one sovereign over anything. He's the one who controls both blessing and curse. Why are we looking anywhere else? Verse 9 is the pinnacle. It's the focal point of this chapter and of this whole final oracle in verses, chapters 12 through 14. In fact, I believe it's the pinnacle of the whole book of Zechariah. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth in that day. Yahweh will be the only one in His name. The only one. What does that mean? Yahweh will be the only one. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? There will be no competition for His authority and His dominion. He will have no peers. Every ruler and every subject and every human kingdom will bow before one king. It won't matter what their status in life was before these events. They will bow before one king. Either willingly or unwillingly, by the way, at this point. The declaration His name will be one means that He will be the only one receiving exaltation. His name is His character. It's who He is. The perfection of His character and of His dealings with men throughout the ages, even His dealings with creation, will place His name above all others. Philippians 2. You know the passage. Jesus became, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. He became a man. It says, because Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, God highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's going to happen. When Jesus takes His seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem, after vanquishing all the enemies of God and of the people of God, when before the eyes of every living person on earth, He takes His position, His rightful position as the ruler over all of God's creation, there will be no one who doesn't bow before Him. Verses 16-19 through 19 drive that reality home. They speak of the day when any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feasts of Booths. The Feast of Booths. The King's name, by the way, is Yahweh of hosts. The Lord of armies that we sang about this morning. And that King is Messiah. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh. I could go a long time talking about my last conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses at my door that started with me saying to them, Jesus is Jehovah. The singling out of Egypt in verses 18 and 19 is a fascinating declaration in light of Israel's history with that nation. There's actually an amazing reversal of the exodus here. <laughs> Instead of Israel coming out of Egypt, we find Egypt coming into Israel to worship Israel's king. Along with the people of all the other nations, the Egyptians will come up to Jerusalem to worship the king and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
That's a beautiful irony if you know what the Feast of Booths was about. See, the Feast of Booths was celebrated by Israel after their exodus from Egypt when God freed them from slavery in Egypt and they were having to go through the desert wilderness on the way to the land of promise. And they had to live in tents, booths, tabernacles. They lived in those tents in the desert in complete dependence on God for provision and protection because there was no other source of provision and protection to be had. This festival occurred right at the end of the annual harvest, the annual agricultural cycle every year in Israel. It was the grandest of all the celebrations in terms of the scope. After Israel entered the land of promise, think about this, after they entered the land of promise and they built fortified cities, and they had houses and land and cattle and sheep and crops instead of desert wilderness and manna from heaven and water from rocks, this great annual festival served as a very tangible memorial that their protection and their provision still came from the same source from which it had always come. The Lord, of, the Lord of armies. While this passage declares that all men and all nations on the earth will be subject to the Lord's rule, that all men will bow to Him, there is a clear implication in these verses that not all will bow willingly. And that's perfectly in keeping with other passages like Psalm chapter 2 that talks about Jesus ruling over all the nations with a rod of iron. The same language that Revelation 19 uses. Our passage here in Zechariah 14 says, if any nation or family among all the nations of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Think about that for a minute. Think about living in a country, a whole country, where there's no rain. Throughout the Bible, water is presented as the sustainer of life and as a picture of the cleansing that comes from God that gives spiritual life and that sustains that spiritual life. Throughout the Bible, God is declared to be the one and only source of that living water. We just talked about that. God's warning here, is that He will withhold rain from any nation or people who refuses to acknowledge their dependence on Him as the source of provision and protection, the only source, by coming up and participating in this great feast. Those who refuse to honor God as God or give thanks will receive no water. Those who can't bring themselves to humbly and gratefully come up to Jerusalem year by year in demonstration of their joyful submission to God, in demonstration of their gratitude toward God, will suffer not only the loss of physical provision, but at the same time they will suffer the absence of spiritual provision, the absence of life-sustaining communion with God. Based on the stern warning in these verses and on many other Old Testament passages, I believe that the kingdom of Jesus on earth that this passage is talking about is an intermediate kingdom before the eternal state. Before the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Because there won't be any resistance in that kingdom. I believe this kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth is what Revelation 20 refers to as the thousand years during which Satan will be bound in the abyss 
And the redeemed of God will rule. They will reign with Him. And even with Satan bound, even with Jesus ruling over all the nations in perfect righteousness and justice, some will submit to Him only begrudgingly. Still clinging to their exaltation of self above God. Now, let me be clear with you. Many godly men and women believe that the reign of Jesus Christ together with His redeemed that's spoken of in Revelation 20 is not a literal thousand years, nor is it an earthly reign in which Jesus rules from Jerusalem over all the earth. They rightly point out that Revelation 20 doesn't mention Jerusalem. They believe that that passage, Revelation 20, refers to Christ's heavenly reign that has been going on ever since His glorious resurrection. They believe that the next time Jesus sets foot on this earth, it will be to completely put away sin and the curse of sin and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And that Jesus will on that day be the temple in Jerusalem. And there will be no temple before that between now and then. While I personally come to different conclusions than they do about the timing and some other details of these events prophesied in passages like this one, I am 100% on board with their understanding of the ultimate and eternal reign of Jesus Christ. What that will be like in the new Jerusalem on the redeemed new earth that has been purified by fire. When you get right down to it, you can take all the schools of evangelical Christian eschatology and we're all ultimately looking for the same. God dwelling in the midst of His people having put the curse away. Let's make sure that we are together on that with all of our brothers and sisters across the world. Because that's our hope. That's our hope. I firmly believe that that people that are of that, that eschatological approach that I just described raise very important challenges from Scripture that every believer needs to reckon with especially this one. I heartily, wholeheartedly agree with their assertion that Jesus is presently reigning over His church. He is presently reigning over His heavenly kingdom and we, His body on earth, are His subjects. We're already citizens of that heavenly kingdom. We are already citizens of that heavenly city. That defines us. Christ's reign on earth is a present reality not only in His church, but through His church to bring all people that we can lay hold of, that He can lay hold of through us, to bring them into His glorious kingdom. That's why we're still here. He could have taken us the moment He justified us. We're still here so He can expand His kingdom. I'll come back to the ramifications of His present reign in in just a moment, but I'm going to get to the last two verses before we run out of time. Verses 20 and 21 present a state of affairs in Jerusalem and Judah that the world has never even remotely seen. There will be an inscription on the bells of of every horse that says, Holy to Yahweh. Every cooking pot throughout Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. (laughs) There won't be one, one pot that's used for religious ceremonies and another for cooking the bread that your family eats. Every pot will be holy to the Lord. These last two verses give us a vivid picture of the wonderful fulfillment of God's call and promise 
both to Israel and to us who have been grafted into the promises that God gave to Israel by faith in Jesus Christ. These two verses employ a very, very common figure of speech in the Old Testament and the New. It's called a merism. It's where you put two parts of, or maybe three parts of something to represent the whole. Probably the most well-known example is when Jesus in Revelation says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Does that mean that if, when you start at B and go to Y, that he doesn't, he doesn't have anything to do with those letters? No. I'm the Alpha and the Omega and the whole alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end and I'm everything in between. Deuteronomy 6, when you sit down, when you rise up, and when you walk by the way. In other words, all the time. Talk about the things of the Lord with your children. The point here isn't that only the bells on the horses and the pots in the kitchens in Israel will be holy to the Lord. The point is everything in Israel will be holy to the Lord. Everything on earth will be holy to the Lord. I believe these last two verses are the culmination of the whole book. They're the end point. The focus in terms of the person is verse 9. And the focus in terms of the place and what's going to happen in that place among the people of God is verses 20 and 21. Everything will be holy to Yahweh. When God brings all of the astounding prophecies in this book to completion, there will be no unwilling submission to Him, praise God. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more illness. Because there will be no more curse. There will be the redeemed saints of God dwelling with Him in the glorious heavenly place that He has wonderfully prepared and brought down to earth so that we can live there with Him. The new Jerusalem. As for the already and not yet aspect of the kingdom of Christ, let me say again that while I believe that we're still waiting for the promises of this passage to be fulfilled in large measure, I absolutely believe that we who belong to Christ through faith in Him alone are already citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And His calling to us as His redeemed people is the same now as it will be then. Everything is to be holy to Yahweh. Holy means set apart. Set apart to Yahweh means that everything that we have is devoted to Him, to His purposes. To His agenda. Everything that we have is to conform to His character. How can we and how must we as the redeemed people of God live out that principle right now? I love verse 20 in that regard. It's not just your horse that's set apart for God's glory and purposes. It's even the bling on your horse. The bells on the horses become memorials to God. Ornaments to adorn God. Not to adorn the horse and not to to give props to the horse's owner. I am OCD about my car. Just ask my wife and kids. It's a great car, but it's got a whole lot of miles on it and it's got some hail dents. Heaven forbid that I should ever have a new car. I'd be impossible to live with. But what would it be like if the shine on my car was submitted to God's glory and God's purposes? It might not be so shiny. What would it look like if everything from the hood ornament on your car to the pots in your kitchen were set apart to God? Everything. Your house, your children, your free time in the evening, 
The time before work in the morning. The money stashed in your retirement account for security. I've been blessed to know many dear men and women in this body and in others who take this commission from God very seriously indeed. Not out of a sense of burden, but out of a genuine love for God because they know His worthiness that we talked about in the worship this morning. Love for God, love for the people of God, and love for the lost that they might come to know our magnificent God. The pots and pans in the kitchens of some of the women in this body spend a whole lot more time preparing meals for other needful people than they do for preparing meals for the families in those households. I know men in this body whose free time is all God time. doesn't matter whether they come home from a very hard day in the evening or they have to get up super early in the morning. Their time is completely at God's disposal. And they are ministering and ministering and ministering. And a lot of them are completely unknown except to those that are receiving the ministry. I know men and women who have put their own children in harm's way and have given up all kinds of things that we as Americans take for granted every day purely for the sake of advancing the Gospel in the most dangerous places in this world. But this principle doesn't only apply to our individual and family lives. It applies to us as a church, as a body, both here and in the church in the world. If we are living as citizens and willing servants of the King of Kings, all of our dealings with one another when we come together, all of our words and interactions with one another in every other context, every discussion, every theological debate, every disagreement, every interaction of any kind will be purposed to advance the Gospel of the Kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together as one. Not as many. As one. Christ doesn't have a lot of bodies. He has one body. And that means that we never do things in a manner that divides us. Because the ongoing work of Jesus Christ depends on us being one. The furtherance of the kingdom of Christ through His church depends on the unity of Jesus Christ in His church. And the purpose, by the way, the task that unites us is the Gospel. Read Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. When we started this study, I said that God's call to us is to set the stage for the return of His Messiah to His redeemed place to dwell in the midst of His people. See, we're stagehands. We're here to show Him off. We're here to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. Titus 2, verse 10. We're here to be His instruments to point men to Jesus Christ and to prepare the hearts of lost men and women and children to receive Him by faith so they can be with us in His kingdom. If we're going to be effective stage setters, you and I have to follow Him with all our heart. We have to be holy to Yahweh. And I want to make sure that we're clear on this. This is not about burdensome duty. And it's certainly not about mustering up some magnificent obedience from within yourself. You can 
have fun with that. It's about becoming so overwhelmed with His worthiness that the only reasonable thing to do is to serve Him with all we have and all we are. If you find it hard to stay on task and following hard after Jesus Christ, the solution isn't for you to work harder at following. The solution is for you to behold Him and to know Him better. Because when you come to see Him as the one and only King who is worthy of your affection and your allegiance and your obedience and your love, no one has to say to you, follow Him. You will be saying to God, here I am, Lord, where do you want me? That's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. That's what the Christian life is like when we keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Dear Father, all of these astounding warnings and promises are going to come about whether we're on the same page with You or not. But we want to be on that page, Lord. We want to be the best stagehands in the history of the world right now. We want to be used by You every day of our lives to make all things ready for the return of Your Son, our glorious King. Set us apart, Father, to do only what You have for us to do until that day in the knowledge that our King is the only King. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.